This is Liz Powell, founder and president of G2G Consulting, which stands for Government to Growth. And Femtech to me is all about innovation opportunities in women's health. There are policies that are shaping this on a daily basis and engagement with government is key to advancing Femtech. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Liz Powell, the founder of G2G Consulting. Liz has over 25 years of experience working on health, defense, high-tech, and economic development issues in the Congress and as an attorney and lobbyist. She started G2G Consulting in 2007, which is a bipartisan team of funding experts and government affairs professionals. They have helped bioscience, healthcare, and high-tech innovators, entrepreneurs, research institutes, companies, and nonprofits in securing over $423 million in non-dilutive government funding. In this interview, we discuss the role of policy in women's health, the impact of Roe v. Wade on voter turnout in the midterm elections in the United States, and how to get involved in changing policy as it relates to women's health. This is a great opportunity for FemFans to learn about the role of government in women's health care and how you can influence the final policy. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Liz, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Good to be here. It is awesome to have you. I feel like we have both been working in women's health so hard for years and like we're colleagues, but I'm actually really excited to hear your story today because I, I I really haven't spoken to you personally. So I'm like really, I know you love femtech and I love femtech. So therefore we're probably Absolutely. friends, but uh, maybe, maybe you have other things going on in your life. Who knows? <laughs> uh, where are you calling us from today? Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. Okay, that sounds like the right place for you to be located based on what we're going to talk about today. Um, First, let's talk about you, though. Um, Do you mind giving our listeners a little bit of backdrop into who Liz is? Where are you from? What did you study? What did you do before this? Um, And then how did you get to G2G Consulting? Sure. Um, So thanks again for having me. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, And uh, one of these days we will meet in person, I'm Mm -hmm. sure, and have a very long dinner. But (laughs) in the meantime, my background. So um, I actually double majored in philosophy and women's studies in college. And I was a big student activist. I organized all kinds of protests and very active on everything from sexual violence to reproductive rights to um, AIDS to racism all kinds of different issues. Um, and I, so I was into issues before I discovered politics and then I sort of stumbled into, Oh, <laughs> like, what's a this? Career. Uh, yeah, this is how a bill becomes a law. And like, <laughs> this is how you could shape yeah. policy. And so then I came to Washington right after I graduated. Um, I worked on a campaign and then um, did some government affairs work for an association on, uh, on substance abuse and then got onto the Hill um, and moved up on the Hill as the legislative director for a couple different members, one from the East Coast, one from the West Coast, so very different members. And 
Also got my law degree and a master's in public health. I spent a year in London working on the health committee in their House of Commons, and then was hired in Ohio to work for the Kerry presidential campaign. I'm from Boston originally. I have no roots in Ohio, but sure, Ohio's a bellwether state. I'll go there. At least it used to be. So I went there and I met um, a lot of really interesting people. This is now 2004. Mm-hmm. Um and minds were starting to change about the war. And so a lot of independence came out. I ended up meeting a lot of entrepreneurs and uh, and some nonprofits that were doing great things, but they didn't necessarily know how to navigate government, uh, mm-hmm. especially the federal government, how to get funded and how to um, grow their organization, um, have bigger impact by partnering with government. And so I got the idea for G2G, which stands for Government to Growth. Um, so we're all about growth. And we work with both um, entrepreneurs, um, startups, as well as nonprofits and help them access government funding, navigate policy, um, regulation, you know, working administration as well as Congress. So that's sort of my my little story. Um, and we are we're now going on our 16th year of G2G consulting, which is crazy. That's so yeah. awesome. That's so great. <laughs> but at what point did it have a women's health angle to it? Did, was that always part of it or is that a newer like objective of the group? Yeah, it um, it did not start out that way. Um, it started out really about entrepreneurship, innovation, um, especially in health, a lot of health work. And um, there would be some women's issues in there. And in time, um, I just was like going back to my roots and really wanted to get more and more involved with women's health and that's where I got active with this Women's Health Innovation Coalition and helped launch that um, back in the fall of 2019. That's right. So yeah. that coalition is part of Springboard Enterprise, which is the oldest female founder accelerator in the country. 30 years old, y'all, like probably maybe like 32 now, but they're <laughs> legit amazing force yeah. of networked women who help other female entrepreneurs get you know, their bearings in business and and then growth. Uh, but they launched this Women's Health Innovation Coalition, which is kind of like this little offshoot thing. So can you describe a little bit about how you've worked with them? And, um, you know, what are some of the goals of that collaboration? Yeah, I'll tell you what was really cool. Um, we all got together in New York City, the fall of 2019, when we could all sit around a big conference table. Before we knew what was coming. (laughs) And um, we had in the room, we had definitely entrepreneurs and innovators. We had some clinicians, we had um, some VC, some folks that were very successful in business shifting over to doing more women's health. We had ACOG, some of the national groups. Um, I think I was one of the only policy people in the room. and what we did is we sort of talked about different aspects of women's health where there are these gaps and therefore great innovation opportunities, but yet we still don't have an ecosystem that really supports women's health innovation. Um, way under uh, investment numbers, for example, whether you're talking about government or private sector, um, just the whole, even the ability to say certain words um, in social media, et cetera. So we just kept, the more we delved into different aspects of women's health, we found this same theme throughout And at the end, I remember standing up and saying, wait a second, we have got to do something on the policy front with this. We could actually drive some change. We, For the first time ever, we're going to have two women in the chair and ranking position of the Appropriations Committee, which determines all the funding in Congress. And I said, that's an opportunity. And so from there, we sort of 
pulled together the key arguments, shaped the different aspects of women's health that we would tackle. Um, Springboard created that the website and just had a natural following from all the wonderful um, entrepreneurs that they work with through Springboard. And it just kind of came together and then lifted um, in spring of 2020 and really took off and it's grown. It's well over 200, maybe 300 now at this point members. And it's this vehicle to convene and address these women's health innovation gaps. Um, and our role has been to represent before Congress, to make sure Congress understands, to uh, make sure some changes are happening in the regulatory and policy arena and in funding where it can, it can really move the needle. Um, there's a lot more to do, but at least we're now um, unified and raising a lot of awareness about these gaps. So. Well, that partnership and all of those resources came out just as Femtech really started to hit the ground running. Our show first aired March of 2020, so literally mm-hmm. right on that timeline. Um, Perfect. You know, this may seem like a duh question, but I need to ask it because uh, one, even the people who may already know the answer, you may still enlighten them. And also, I want to be mindful of anyone listening who may not think that there's a connection here between policy and women's health. Why do we have a policy, you know, woman on our show today? So in, you know, in a short brief, why should anyone who cares about women's health care about policy? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think connecting those dots is really important. Um, There are so many policy decisions that the government makes that impacts your lives. You just don't realize it. Um, and it's all kinds of things. I think we saw it front and center with Roe v. Wade and the decision from the Supreme Court. Now, that was not on Capitol Hill. That was a Supreme Court decision. But in response to that, there's been legislative activity um, and leading up to it. And every year there's an appropriations bill that has to get done in the health area. There's actually 12 appropriation bills that get done every year. And inevitably, they end up doing an omnibus, which I'm sure you heard about in the news at the very end of December, where they just lump it all together. Mm. But in any case, there are these appropriation uh, pieces of legislation that move every year. So for years, since the 70s, there has been the Hyde Amendment. There's been legislative language limiting the ability of women in Medicaid to get access to abortion. So that's a policy measure that you may not even think about, but that, that's coming from Congress that is restricting women across the board. And there's other language, like um, for years, they were putting a ton into abstinence, even though some many studies were showing that it wasn't effective in reducing um, unplanned pregnancies. But that was a, a funding stream that was going out to all the states. And if you're a state governor, no matter what you think about the issue, and maybe you think abstinence is great, but you also need education as well, or whatever your take is, if you're seeing millions of dollars coming to your state, of course, you're going to want to grab those dollars for your state. Mm -hmm. But what they would do is restrict it to only abstinence. You weren't allowed to talk about any other. You can um, take this money as long as you read the script kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So there are all kinds of, those are some extreme ones, but there's all kinds of ones. And it's whether it's directive language that's, that's limiting behavior activity or it is funding. If they're putting a ton of funding into one aspect of health and not another, for example, mm-hmm. there's only uh, 11%, I think it is, of NIH funding that goes towards women's health. So there, if you have that direction of funding or that gap in funding, that is going to shape the ecosystem mm-hmm. and then ultimately our health. So it is very related. And now a quick word from our sponsors. 
If you're looking to give superpowers to your care team and scale your operations while delivering the best digital clinic experience, then listen up. Today, I want to introduce you to Nabla, a company I've known for over a year now that's building an impressive AI assistant for healthcare professionals. It's allowing them to spend less time on administrative tasks and more time caring for their patients. Nabla does this by providing messaging, video consultation, and scheduling modules augmented with AI capabilities that automate tasks like consultation note-taking, patient record updating, triaging, and asynchronous follow-ups. On average, it cuts the time spent by physicians on filling out clinical notes by half, and who wouldn't want that? It's used by digital clinics all over the world, including multiple femtech companies. Whether you're a newly launched digital clinic or an established one, Nabla offers full-stack communication solutions as well as bespoke integration with existing tech infrastructures. If you want to see what it looks like, make sure to try Nabla for free by signing up at www.nabla.com. That's Nabla, N-A-B-L-A.com. It's digital care, superpowered. And now back to the interview. What is the current uh, temperature, if you will, of what the U.S. government thinks about women's health? It's been a big cluster this year, right? Or last year, I guess, right? We're recording this in 2023, um, you know, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade via the Dobbs decision. So women's health, is, I know, is on people's minds. It had a huge impact on the midterms. We can talk about that, too, with people coming out to vote based on these types of issues. Um, But in general, like, what's the temperature of women's health in the government and specifically the U.S. government? Is it this, like, rising issue that you think are like, oh my God, they're really all talking about it? Or do you feel like you're still talking to a wall, a little bit of both? What What's the yeah. sense there? <laughs> yes to all. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, we have more women in Congress than ever before, um, about 25%, uh, which is great. Um, so now you just have a natural understanding. Mm-hmm. But 25% is still not 50%, which is technically what it really should be. Um, and also there's you know, for years, and I still, still think it's true. People think of women's health as just having babies mm-hmm. and it's very limited. Um, and yet there's so much data now on, um, everything from gaslighting to just, um, the different ways in which, um, common conditions, cardiovascular disease impact women, the, the symptoms of a stroke or a heart attack are just different in women. Um, certain risk factors like high cholesterol is a big risk factor for men. It's actually not so much for women. So there's all these differences that impact health um, that are very nuanced. And I think that there's still a good proportion of folks in Congress, in state legislatures, all levels of government, who still think it's like having babies. And there's yeah. a lot of women who never want to have babies. You know, I mean, yeah. you can't ignore that population. So um, and there's so much more to health, obviously, than that one stage of life. So on the one hand, there's opportunities. There's more women in Congress. There's definitely a lot of conversation about women's health. There's organizations like us. There's people like you who are bringing it to the forefront, getting attention. And yet there still is, I think, a lot of misconceptions about what exactly is women's health, what can be done to create. I keep going back to this ecosystem that is just more supportive and nurturing of advancing women's health innovation that ultimately is going to save patients and improve patient outcomes. And save the country money, right? And save like, a lot of money. That's right. And maybe even produce money, right? Because if women right. are healthy, 
they're out shopping, they're investing in their business, they're operating their local community group, you know, and like your economies do better. So, I mean, you and I were like, duh, right? We we do this day and night. And, yeah. and I can actually have a little bit of grace for these politicians. Like if they don't understand that women's health is more than baby making, I, I kind of understand that that's the way it's been for most of time, right? So yeah. how do people like myself or you or our listeners educate these people who are voting on things that they should be considering sex as a biological variable in, right? So is it, you know, through, is it just through voting that they listen? Is it through letters that they listen? Is it through their funders, right? Is it like, do we need to talk to the donors of these people's political campaigns? Like what's the best way to educate these folks? Again, yes to all. (laughs) I love it all. Um, You know, voting is very, very important. Registering to vote, getting your friends to vote, your kids to vote, your moms, your dads, like everyone vote. Absolutely. But you're not done after that, right? You got to continue to engage. And um, if you go to house.gov, you can put in your zip code and find your member of Congress. Um, Senate is more obvious, but like there are resources for you. And then once you're there, you can click on the website and it's like two clicks and you can submit a letter. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm a constituent. I live in whatever city and I'm a doctor or I'm a researcher, I'm a student, whatever your affiliation is. And I care about this issue and, or I just want to see more funding for women's health generally because there are these gaps in research dollars. Um, so there are ways for you to communicate directly online without too much effort. If you want to get more engaged, then, you know, look out for there's town hall meetings that every member of Congress does, um, usually during their recess or summer recess is a good time for those. Go in person, raise your hand, talk about these issues that you care about. You can also set up meetings. You can meet with them in what they call the district office or the state office. You can come to D.C. People are coming back to D.C. The doors are opening again. Um, And like Mom Congress, they do every March, they do a fly-in. Tons of different groups do these fly-ins, but you don't have to be part of that. You can just come on your own. And you should not be shy. And remember that we are paying them. Like we're Mm -hmm. literally their bosses, right? Like they work for us. So don't be shy about calling and saying, Hey, I'm a constituent. I want to come talk to you about this health issue. It's important to me. It's important that it gets funded, you know, whatever the, I guess the issue is that you're addressing. It's really important to share your voice. Very cool. And I know we'll get into some examples of reaching out and making change through some of the examples of work you've done over the last few years. Um, But first, what I wanted to ask about is that um, turnout and voters, this Mm -hmm. this could be a whole episode, and I know this, so um, I'm mindful of that this question could be a whole episode. What was the impact of the Dobbs decision, which again, is that the court Supreme Court ruled that it is not a constitutional right any longer in the United States for women to have access to abortion. So with that being eliminated from the constitution, we now have a statewide state by state system where states can decide um, whether or not abortion is accessible within their state. With that little backdrop there, we saw a huge voter turnout. So I've heard a lot of people went out and voted in the midterm elections, which for those listening around the world, that was our Congress and our Senate, not the president. That's the other two years. Um, uh, but we were kind of surprised that abortion had that big of a pull. So just kind of give us some, maybe some statistics or stories or what happened this year. Was it that really that radically surprising that women's health on the ballot brings out voters? And what does that mean for the future? Well, it's really interesting because for years, we have had almost 50 years or something, we've had this, um, the right, we've had this right 
So when people would talk about, oh, we're going to end abortion, it was different because the the right was already in law and in, in effect. But now it's suddenly flipped. And I think it woke up a lot of people who forever thought that would never happen and was very motivating. The timing of it, the summer, right, leading into the election, had it been the summer before, I don't know if it would have had because it would have been yeah. farther out. Then again, maybe not because more and more states would have acted and then that would have had even more of a snowball effect. Um, the other thing is they noticed in 10 states, there was a huge surge in women registering to vote. Um, what's interesting is that in some of those states that really tipped it, a state like Pennsylvania was important, um, to the Senate election, for example. Um, but in a state like Ohio, uh, it was not, um, it was a quite a a comfortable spread Mm. for the pro-life candidate. So, um, it's interesting. I think in many ways it did shape, uh, having more women register did shape the outcomes, but the assumption that all all women vote the same way still is is not true. Um, there's still plenty who, um, who don't, uh, vote on this issue. So, um, on the one hand, I think it had a huge mobilizing effect and it also enabled organizations to communicate with many that maybe were untapped before. So I think it did mobilize and get a lot of people out to vote. Um, I just don't think it's, um, it's a for sure thing, you know, cause, cause they were exceptions. Uh, so we all have to like take that into consideration as well. Yeah. Do you think that this, um, you know, this activity that happened because of this is going to affect uh, any kind of strategy for campaigns in the future in terms of women's health? Do you think that, you know, obviously abortion, I think we're still going to hear about that for the next few years, uh, you know, until hopefully we get the right back. Uh, but is there other women's health issues that you think would have similar kind of draws like this? Yeah, I'll tell you what's really interesting with this one. There were, like I said before, it's people just it was the right. And so it was very easy to be on the other side and say, oh yeah, no, we're going to get a, you know, eliminate this. Right. Well, once it flipped and a lot of state legislatures had these laws that automatically went into effect, they were ready to go as soon as it, uh, that decision came down. And, um, some brave legislators have come out to say, wait a second, this went too far. And now we're having all these stories heart wrenching stories of someone very young needing to get an abortion someone um, going into septic shock uh, before they could actually get those services. Um, You know, babies that weren't, uh, um, sorry, fetuses that weren't ever going to become babies um, medically. It was clear, but the doctor could not um, help that patient because of these laws. So I think as more of those stories came out and legislators are willing to step up and say, wait a second, we, there is a broader health issue that that's getting impacted here. Um, so I think that some, you know, raised awareness is, is happened, which is good. So there should be some changes I would expect to make sure that we're not killing women. Right. Or, you know, some 19 year old young woman can never have babies because of this. It's like, you know, so I I think there's nuances to this that are being um, better understood now and hopefully will turn into legislation that protects that broader area. Um, I mean, women's health is, is much 
much bigger than this. But at the same time, thanks to studies like that Apple study with Harvard, they're finding out that, you know, a woman's menstrual cycle actually does tie into a lot of different health um, mm-hmm. data points, right? So it's um, it's very interesting. I think as there's more money dedicated to women's health, we're learning more and we're able to innovate better and improve um, outcomes. And it's on the diagnostic side, not just the therapeutic side um, of things, which is really critical. Um, and then there's even things like, like bias, you know, we still have subtle bias. We have bias in how algorithms, um, are calculated. Uh, for example, uh, black patients are, it's always assumed that they can take higher pain levels, which is insane. Um, so there's still a ways to go. Um, but, but at least we're seeing some eyebrows raised now with what's happened with the job decision that there's this ripple effect across broader health areas. Um, so I don't know. So we'll see what happens. Um, this new Congress is going to be tricky though, but we'll see. Hmm. Well, let's talk about, I have six different campaigns here that you've worked on in the last few years for women's health. I think running through them is one, a great example of the different ways that policy affects women's health, but it also highlights um, other strategies for our listeners to do or get involved in. So we have uh, one of them here is crafting a policy proposal to close the gaps in women's health research, medical training, diagnostics, and clinical care. So crafting a policy proposal, like how does some how does one get involved in that? Is that like a, a setup like activity and like they pick experts to help or like how do I just email someone saying like I want to help craft policy? Like how does one craft policy? Yeah. Well, first of all, you can always email me because I'm always okay. interested in that. But um, <laughs> that's right. Liz, honestly, probably if it's the government, I'm always just gonna email you probably first. Awesome. <laughs> um Yeah. So I think the key is starting out with the problem, being able to describe the problem and showing that it's systemic. It's not just a one-off anecdote, but it is a systemic problem because how the algorithm was written, for example, um, how the clinical trial was designed, right? Um, So if it's a systemic problem, you have to be able to explain that well, and then come up with what is the solution? Do we need to change? Like one thing we worked on is diversity in clinical trials requiring the um, the FDA to require anyone that's going through FDA for approval, they have to provide a report on exactly what they're doing to address the lack of diversity um, historically in clinical trials. So with their clinical trial that they're designing, presenting to FDA now, they have to have a concrete plan um, to ensure that there is appropriate diversity. And then FDA has to report that to Congress. So sometimes reporting forces activity, mm. um, other times it's money, but um, but that's one example. So it's so clearly describing that problem and then what the recommended solution is. What's that policy change that would enable systemic change? Yeah, I love it. The next one I have here is collaborating with the Office of Research on Women's Health um, on efforts such as pushing to increase the current 11% of the National Institutes of Health, NIH, research funding that is currently dedicated to women's health. So out of 100%, 11% of our government's budget for health and research, you know, grant funding is dedicated to women's health. So organizing or um, collaborating with that Office of Research you know, like, uh, what does that look like? And, and where, where is that currently standing? Cause I have heard people talk about, we should have an Institute for women's health as part of one of the institutes. Like, is there any traction there? Give us an update on that. I think that's unlikely at this point. Um, (laughs) Okay. You're, you're real. I appreciate that. (laughs) I'm, I'm the entrepreneur. I'm the dreamer. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm glad. Let's keep (laughs) speaking. Um, 
you know, there's there are some pros and cons with that. So with the Office of Research on Women's Health, which uh, many of us worked hard to increase their funding, specifically Society for Women's Health Research, big advocate for them. Um, so they did get a nice increase in funding. Um, however, they're so limited. They don't conduct their own studies. They're supposed to sort of coordinate with the other institutes to get studies done. So that's a challenge. There's also within HHS, Health and Human Services Department, um, an office on women's health. So there's like multiple entities. And then over at FDA, there's another women's health office. So um, on the one hand, it's good because we want to be tapped into different areas. But on the other hand, it's like no one has the real power uh, and funds to to really do much to to drive more uh, women's health research. So, um, and I think creating a new institute is just, that's a tough road. Um, so that's is why that the right road. Do you have any sense of what you think is what, if you were given a magic wand, what you would do? Well, if I was given a magic wand, I mean, I might just require a certain percentage of research dollars for every institute be representative of not just women, but people of color. Yeah. I mean, just require it. Yeah. That would be pretty earth changing, I think, mm -hmm. but I don't know that that would ever happen. Yeah. Um, my magic wand is to let women run the world for at least 10 years. And let's just see what happens. I think that all the time, it. like, what if a woman was in charge of this? Just give us a decade, you know, like yes. all powers and positions of power. I know that's like the, you know, not equality. I know that listeners listen, I know, but yes. magic wand We're scenario. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, speaking of the increase in funding, uh, you had a, a letter writing campaign to Congress to increase funding for research into autoimmune disease. So is that another way that we can increase funding for something specific um, is letter writing? Letter writing is a great idea. And we've done some of these initiatives with um, the Women's Health Innovation Coalition and with your group to try and get as many people as possible to come together to co-sign letters. Yep. Um, and if you can have uh, either having five or six well-known names or having like a hundred different people, either way is very, very impactful. It makes a member of Congress think twice about this issue and really read that letter and the president. We've done similar letters to the president, to this new ARPA-H office. It's all focused on innovation Um so I absolutely think these letters can have um, quite a big impact. And if you're smart, you can release it to the press. You can post it on social media, like just really magnify that um, as much as possible. Do you have any stories of letters you've written or helped, you know, campaign to get written and there was a response? Like, I feel like I've never, I've heard about being told like write letters, but I've never felt like I've heard someone be like, and they wrote back. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, you know, I would say a letter alone is usually not enough. You want to um, also call the staff and schedule a meeting. You can do Zoom calls uh, or, you know, come meet in person now that things are opening up again. Um, but yeah, they definitely work. I mean, a small example, we did a menopause letter. Um, again, back to the issue of women's health is only baby making. It's actually much more. Um, and menopause uh, research dollars are actually minuscule. And so, um, early into the new Biden administration, we wanted to get them while they were um, just starting out. We sent in a letter to the secretary about the need to address menopause. There needs to be more, and, and it's across the board, more research dollars towards ad addressing menopause and, and the impact that it has on the economy. Like so many women actually retire in their fifties when they could totally still be working another 10, 15 years, but because of menopause symptoms being so severe, there's no good solutions out there. 
um, to sort of, I guess, manage the symptoms. And then um, there's the sudden increase in cardiovascular uh, events once a woman crosses over into menopause and there's other sort of health impacts. So there's a lot to study there and yet there's very little dollars. And then on the medical education side of things, physicians don't feel comfortable discussing menopause. Well, if you're an OBGYN and you're not comfortable discussing menopause, that is not good. And so there needs to be better education in just our, our medical education system. So anyway, we addressed a bunch of these issues sent it in, we got a response and we met with um, a physician on his team who was heading up and had a great background in menopause. And um, we uh, we did a call with uh, the leadership of Springboard and some others and talked about some of these gaps that need to be addressed. And she was very engaged and interested and sort of have started a dialogue now with her. So wow. it, does, it does work to get a response. I've got other examples where we actually mm-hmm. changed a whole CMS reimbursement code because we did that type of letter writing campaign. So well, I actually wanted to talk about reimbursement. Letters. Yeah. Reimbursement as a policy that affects women's health. So what do you, what is a CMS reimbursement code? So CMS is the centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and they determine um, what is reimbursed and at what level, uh, meaning the the funding level. And so if it's um, first of all, just getting reimbursements key, but then if it's not reimbursed at a sufficient rate, then the physicians can't afford to provide this, whatever the device test procedure, whatever. Yeah. 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 So it is really important. Um, and it's, you know, this whole thing with FDA, that's a whole process getting that approval. And so the effort to have the breakthrough designation, um, and then quickly have it then be reimbursed by CMS is really important. But right now there's that huge gap, um, and especially with women's health. And in fact, one of the issues I worked on with endometriosis, the folks at FDA didn't even appreciate that it was a debilitating chronic disease. So there's a, quite a bit of education just to get them to understand that, which directly impacts what they're going to approve uh, for therapies and diagnostics along those lines. So it's all very interrelated. Um, but uh, to have that influence starts with shaping that problem, coming up with the solution, calling, sending letters, communicating, you know, it's like a whole process to engage. And again, we are taxpayers paying all of these people's salaries. So please don't ever be shy about that outreach. I'm, I think it's actually one of the most important things for me in terms of policy and women's health. It's like grants. We need more grant pots of money for us to apply to and get money so we can do research in laboratories and at institutions and not just founders fundraising angel capital in order to do research. We should be doing that with scientists in great settings with technology, right? Um, But I also think another really big one is the hoops that FDA makes you go through for approval and also the payment system, the CMS, because at the end of the day, my founders in Femtech uh, need to sell their company and they sell their company by showing profitability or revenue and you get revenue by billing codes. Otherwise you get what Femtech originally was, which was a direct to consumer industry where everyone just said, well, I guess just rich, rich, affluent white women can pay 15,000 out of pocket for this remote monitor for their, you know, their ba- belly bump, you know, their baby. Uh, that's just how we're going to go. But now we're thinking about Medicare, Medicaid, getting insurance to cover it on average. How long does it take to make a new billing code? Do you know? Well, if you're lucky and you, um, submit the request, um, get considered within six months, maybe a year. Um, but I know stories of it taking several years. Yeah, yeah. So this is important. This is really important for our listeners to know about it, whether they be a founder, 
an investor, business person, like if you're not asking the question, is a billing code already created for this? You're missing a big risk because when they made these billing codes, they weren't considering endometriosis because we just now have our first diagnostics that are still in clinical trials. So they didn't make billing codes for things that didn't exist yet. So I can kind of appreciate that, but we got to fix the system. Um, This has been super fascinating. Do you have any last advice? I know we've been talking about it throughout, but is there any clear call to action for our listeners? Like, can they get involved specifically with you and G to G consulting? If so, how could they do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, first of all, as I've said several times, remember, you know, this is your Congress, this is your government, um, and you've got to have a voice in it. Um, You will shape it. You can make a difference. So please, please keep that in mind. And, you know, at G2G, you can go to g2gconsulting.com. We actually have a whole webpage designed to our for our women's health work. And we do specific um, mailings on it, um, sort of campaigns to promote activities, um, letter writing, all kinds of things that you can do to engage. So please sign up. Um, we want to work with you and, um, you know, just stay involved. I think it's really, really important to stay involved in our in our government system. Yeah. If we have founders listening that need a billing code, can they email you about that? Absolutely. Lpowell okay, at g2gconsulting.com. That's great. We, I will, I didn't, honestly didn't know that you were, <laughs> so that's a good reference point for myself. Well, Liz, yeah. it's been amazing. We have two last questioners that are questions that our listeners love. The first one is we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. So what is an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Oh, so many areas. Besides all of it. (laughs) I'll tell you one thing I didn't mention. um, In this omnibus, they included $10 million for a new office of autoimmune disease research within Mm -hmm. the Office of Women's Health Research. So autoimmune, you know, 80% of patients are women. um, That's a great area. And it seems like a really good opportunity now that there's a government office behind that. So that could be something for some of your entrepreneurs. But I think that there's lots of room to innovate, um, but you got to remember it starts with education. These policymakers do not, they're not scientists, very few are scientists. Um, There's like two doctors. Well, there's more than that. There's a handful of doctors. Um, So, you know, you have to educate on these issues in an easy to understand eighth grade level. Um, And then once you do that, I think that you really can um, move the needle, whether it's um, a policy shift or regulation, CMS code, reimbursement rate funding, whatever it is, I do think you can make an impact. Very cool. Uh, And then what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Mm. I think a united, forceful voice Mm. to decision makers is really important. And the thing is, there's a lot of decision makers. So there are definitely the policy folks uh, on Capitol Hill. There's the White House. There's the administration. But there's also the investing community. Mm-hmm. Um, they are huge decision makers. And you mentioned this earlier, but they are donors to the politicians. They are in the room with them all the time. And so we need all these key uh, players to understand that women's health is critical to our nation, to all of us. And it's a moneymaker. There's a ton of money to be made in this industry and not enough are understanding that and appreciating it. And they're hurting um, those that are investing in their funds. So it's a win-win all around, but we all got to be united and continue to educate on that um, to really move the needle. 
Liz, well, I'm so happy we have you representing us in the Capitol um, and anything we can do to help you. We are all for it. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Liz Powell, the founder of G2G Consulting. If you're interested in working with G2G, learn more about them at g2gconsulting.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Femtech Focus newsletter, join our virtual community, and follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend and continue to advocate for women's health innovation, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.